Hello and welcome to episode number 186 of the DBSA podcast. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books, and with me today is Amanda from Smart Bitches and Emily Nagoski. Emily is the New York Times bestselling author of Come As You Are, a nonfiction about female sexuality, and she's currently the director of wellness education at Smith College. She's a sex educator and also a debut romance author. Her first book comes out in June. In this interview, we're going to talk about wellness education for undergraduate sex education, arousal non-concordance, which that one section alone might blow your mind because it totally did mine, what romance gets right and wrong about female sexuality, and how much power and rebellion is inherent in the idea of representing women's sexuality accurately. Probably goes without saying that if you're in an office, you might want to use headphones for this one. If you work in a room by yourself, you can turn it up as loud as you like. This podcast is sponsored by Jessica Khoury author of The Forbidden Wish, published by Penguin Young Readers and available in print and ebook. A lush, romantic retelling of Aladdin like you've never imagined. An all-powerful girl Jenny, a handsome boy from the streets, and one forbidden wish, love. Perfect for fans of The Wrath and the Dawn and Dorothy Must Die, available now. And we have some cool things going on at Smart Bitches right now. First, we are hosting an excerpt, an exclusive excerpt, of a short story by Renee Adie called The Moth and the Flame, which is part of her duology that began with The Wrath and the Dawn, which you might remember from mentions on previous podcasts. And there's more. The Wrath and the Dawn is $2.99 this week, until March 29th. So if you're listening to this on the day this episode drops, you have until tomorrow to go buy it for $2.99. Go, go, go. If you're curious, that's a great price, especially because the sequel, and it's a duology, so you know you get the whole thing in two books, that comes out in May. You can see the excerpt and learn more at Smart Bitches, or if you really want to go right there, you can go to bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash moth and flame. The music you're listening to is provided by Sassy Outwater, and I will have information at the end of this podcast as to who this is and where you can buy it for your very own. And one last thing, I've had several messages from listeners who have been asking about ways that they can support the podcast, whether through a tip jar or PayPal or a pledge drive. And after a lot of research, I have decided I'm going to set up a Patreon for the podcast. This means that if you wish, you can do a monthly recurring sponsorship of a dollar, three dollars, five dollars, ten dollars, however much you want, or nothing at all. The podcast will remain the same. The Patreon will let me set up transcripts for the episodes that don't have them yet going all the way back to the beginning and will enable me to get some better editing software and do some other cool things that I've had in mind for a while. So keep in the back of your mind that that's going to happen. And if you'd like more information, email me at sarah at smartbitchestrashybooks.com. And now without any further delay, on with the podcast. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us. I hope you're not terribly jet lagged. No, I have been back since Thursday or Friday. Oh, plenty of time to recover. Yeah, plenty of time to recover. And this is the easy direction. Oh, yeah, it's the it, other way that's hard. Yeah, made even easier because uh, daylight savings happened here but not there. Oh. So it was only right. four hours. On we do yeah. it early like a bunch of buttheads. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, we do it, which is in and of itself a pretty butthead thing to do, it turns yeah. out. And then we moved it. I was I was sort of in principle in favor of uh, the whole daylight savings things, and then I looked at the actual research, which is the th- the thing I tend to do. Like, can I empirically support my opinion? And it turns out no, there is just no argument in favor of changing the clocks, none. So you look at situations you don't know about, 
and you use research and <laughs> I do. science. Empirical evidence, yes. I, okay, so you know that you're not allowed to go on the internet, right? <laughs> we can't have that kind of rational, logical, and intelligent behavior. Yeah. That's just... That that's no, we can't have that. It does actually cause me some problems. Yeah, when you when you rely on science and proven yeah. facts and things like evidence. that. <sighs> evidence. Amanda, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Yay! Yeah, you're there. I saw your <laughs> icon, but I didn't hear you, and I was like, oh no. I did not want to interrupt the griping about daylight savings. <laughs> <laughs> I hate it so much, and the older I get, the more I feel it. Like, I'm just angry yeah. right now that there was snow on the ground today. There so. was. It's gone now, though. Is it's it gone? gone, yeah. I poked my head out. It's all now just water. But <laughs> it was awful. This morning. All right. So would you please, ma'am, introduce yourself? <laughs> sure. I'm, I'm, I'm Emily Nagoski. Do you want, like, a booty? Do you like a bio? You wanna... <laughs> well, I know what? that you are a New York Times bestselling author. Yay! <laughs> Uh, come as you are, which arguably has the greatest zipper cover of any book ever. <laughs> I, I do really like the cover. The UK cover is potentially even better. <gasps> All right, gonna have to go look it up. Make I feel sure like UK it. covers always get the better cover treatment. Yeah, then. what's up the, with that? The one reason why I really just like I have a fondness for it is because the subtitle. So it's a sort of. Um, um, paintbrush outline of a woman's silhouette and the subtitle is her bush it's amazing <laughs> it's so great yeah oh, so so i so i do wow. have an affection for the uk title for the uk cover yeah have you gotten covers in other languages that have been even more awesome um, well, so the, the British cover is the only one that's really significantly different other than the German cover. And the German cover is this sort of like Bauhausian, interwar, minimalist, weird, I don't, and they change the title a lot. Um, it's not come as you are, it's come as you want to, which is not the same. Oh, oh um, that is not the same. The cover of the Polish edition is the same with the with the with the purse on the cover the sort of vulvar purse um but the title is not the same the title in polish is she has the power oh and I kind hello of that. yeah that's pretty great so you're also the director of wellness education at smith is that correct yes that's a cool job it really is yeah there's a lot of amazing things about it you're just sitting around in a women's college campus teaching people about all of their women parts yeah, so one of the cool things about my job is that I do all of the wellness education. So sex is obviously a big part of what I do, but also sleep and stress and substance use. And it has made me a better sex educator because it forces me to think about the way, oh, by the way, you're just going to hear the sounds of my dog, That's my okay. dogs. We welcome pets <laughs> on the podcast. It's always Yes, good. I have heard before, like pretty much every podcast, there's at least one animal that you hear wandering through the room. So my two dogs will be the ones that you hear Yay! in this case. Um, it has made me a better sex educator to do all the health education because it forces me to consider the way sex is integrated into the rest of our lives and not isolated. So one of the things that I think is most powerful about Come As You Are is that it takes into account the fact that sex happens within a context, that it's not the sort of like vacuum, it's sort of like you just have sex and then it's separate from the whole rest of your life. The rest of your life comes with you into your bed. So. Whoa. That was, yeah. It, it, and it, when you were talking about it, 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 it was sort of, my brain was sort of thinking, 
oh, we do tend to try to compartmentalize sex into this one thing that we do at a specific time and it is completely unique from everything else that we do. Yeah, sex books in particular tend to do this. And it was actually sort of a, a struggle as I was writing the book, um, making the case for the two chapters in the book that are pretty much entirely not about sex. Because that's such an odd, rare thing to have in a sex book, um, I had to make a pretty strong argument saying, no, 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 really, it's extremely important that we have this chapter on stress and this other chapter on shame because those things are not separate from sex. Those are part of sex. No kidding. Yeah. I'm curious about the sleep education because I only mm -hmm. started paying attention to my own sleep in the past couple of years and it has made an enormous difference in how I feel and how my immune system is better able to handle anything. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, without enough sleep, my immune system's like, you, you want to come in? C come on. <laughs> pneumonia? Yeah. Sure. Oh, yeah, lungs yeah. are totally ready for you. Come on in, babe. Woo, it's great. Yeah. Like, sleep is a huge deal. It really is. So sleep you're is gonna, vegetables for every single body part. And you're going to sit and, te and, and, and teach college students about sleep? Ambitious, Ooh. driven, high-achieving college students. There are very few health behaviors that are significantly correlated with GPA, but sleep is one of them. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. And they usually expect that the correlation is going to go the opposite direction of how it usually does. You think, oh, well, less sleep, obviously, because you're working so hard, and so therefore higher grades. No, 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 no. No, no, no. More sleep, better grades. I am not surprised, but I also remember how little sleep I got in college and grad school, but college especially. Yeah, I have always, I pulled one all-nighter in grad school. It was in my first year, and I learned my lesson. <laughs> Plus, there's the fact, I mean, do you also look at high schools where, um, you know, you get two hours of homework from this teacher and two hours of homework from that yeah. teacher and then an hour over here and then extracurriculars and then everything else that's happening and then you don't get any sleep at all. Right. And the worst thing is that uh, adolescents, so people between the ages of about 13 to 25, are uh, what's known as phase delayed, which means that their morning circadian peak that wakes them up and their evening circadian peak that keeps them awake happen later in the day than for older or younger people. So when my high school started at 745 in the morning. Yeah, mine was and, at 710. Yeah, physiologically, we're not awake physiologically, hormonally, neurologically, we're not awake until <laughs> nine or 10 in the morning. So our asses might be in the chairs, but we're our bodies there. are asleep. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is not the best learning environment. This is, this would explain why I don't remember a lot of high school. I mean, A, it was not fun, but B, I, I don't remember. You were asleep for a significant portion of it. No, you really were. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about sex. Cause you probably don't ever get enough of that. Right. I, but actually, I, I, there's no such thing as too much talking about sex for me. No, I, I could talk agree. about it forever. I, one of the things I love about the introduction of your book is that you, right up front, basically say to every person who's reading the book, you're normal. You're totally yeah. normal. Whatever it is, you're normal. Do you still get a lot of questions of, okay, this is my experience. Am I normal? Am I okay? Am I sick? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Despite the fact that the entire introduction of the book is dedicated to saying, I know that you've been told that you're not normal and it's normal to be worried about whether or not you're normal, but you're totally normal. And still I get email after email saying, I know you said everyone is normal, but this is my experience. Am I normal? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Three or four a day, every day. Yep. Wow. 
Yeah. Well, it, it's not like women get consistent, educated, scientifically based, logical, oh, rational no. messages about their sexuality or their sex drives at all. On the contrary. No, no. We're told we should be all a number of, of impossible things all at once. Wait, we should be. I was thinking about this the other day, but I realized that I did not receive any sort of sexual education in middle school and high school. I don't, I think I was talking about it with a friend and I remember fourth grade, we had like the basic birds and the bees, like you're going to get your period sort of talk. And then uh, I moved from South Florida to a very rural North Florida sort of area. So I'm sure you can imagine what the education was like there. And I realized we never talked about sex in biology class. We didn't, I mean, we didn't cover evolution either um, because my biologist or my biology teacher thought that the dinosaurs were a test from Jesus. Um, Wow. But uh, yeah, we... Was that kind of like a final exam? Yeah. Wow. I I was like 10th grade biology. No, and I had no like sex education. I mean... It was one of those schools, I think, that practiced, like, abstinence-only sex education. So, I like, the best... I pound my head on the desk during a podcast. Yeah. The audio would be bad. And, like, yeah. the friend I was talking to, just like, what do you What do you mean? You had no... I was like, I, we just kind of had to, like, figure it out. But the funny thing is, is that the county I lived in had the second highest teen pregnancy rate yes. in the state. The devil, so. you say. <laughs> yeah. It's... So, like, well, that kind of makes sense. We've got 34 years of outcome evaluation research on sex education, and it is unambiguously true. We know for sure that abstinence-only sex education doesn't just prevent, it doesn't just fail to prevent STIs and unwanted pregnancy. It actively increases rates of pregnancy, of unwanted pregnancy and STIs, which means it also actively increases rates of abortion. So if you are against abortion and want to reduce rates of abortion, you must be in favor of comprehensive sex education because abstinence-based only sex education causes abortion. So yeah, again, you're not going to be allowed on the internet. Yep, not allowed on the internet. (laughs) Because that's not a consistent (laughs) message I get either. One of the things that struck me while I was reading your book was that there's this, I don't want to call it a subtext, but there are often moments in the text where I can sort of perhaps empathize with your feeling like you are the only sane and rational person in the entire (laughs) fucking universe and everyone around you has lost their goddamn minds and how do we stop the world from going to hell in a handbasket about sex am am i wrong that that's sort of a feeling you encounter sometimes you are not wrong that that is a feeling i encounter i never encounter it when i'm in like an in when i'm teaching either individually or in a group of people, all I feel when I'm actively teaching is like, this is an amazing opportunity. I see people's minds changing. I see them changing their relationship with their own bodies and their understanding of their partners. And I see them forgiving their families for teaching them bullshit, crazy things. Um, It's only when I'm like sitting down by myself trying to answer a question that no one should have anymore. Like, we should all know the answer already to this question, that I feel myself banging my head. Like, the thing in the New York Times just this week about when did porn become sex education? Oh, porn God. has always been sex education. That like, is how we get our education. Porn and romance novels. I got my sex education from romance novels. Absolutely. Actually, a combination of romance novels and the medical encyclopedia in my parents' house. And it's odd because those are the things that are readily available and easily accessible. 
because yeah. actual sex education is not. I had to sign a permission form for my fifth grader to have sex education in school, and it's a pretty comprehensive oh, outline. It was a, it was. I don't know if you guys know the the miracle that that, that this is, but it was a double sided Xerox. Usually, I get a one side. <laughs> schools love a good one-sided Xerox. Nobody knows how to do the duplication on both sides, so you wait, don't waste paper. But the the sex education outline for the spring semester for the fifth grade was a two-sided outline, and it was extremely comprehensive. And I was like, hell yes, you're taking this. How fast can I sign this paper? And then I realized there were going to be a lot of students who were being removed from the classroom during that period of time. And I was like, oh, man. Was it opt-in or opt-out? It was opt-in. Oh God! Now I have like, to remember the language. I think it was like an opt out. Opt out means the default is you get this, and you have to actively sign the piece of paper in order to opt out. An opt, uh, um, so opt out is uh, a fancy trick. I lived in Indiana for seven years, and um, I did a bunch of research under um, a faculty member in my department who worked with the state of Indiana okay. on their sex education. And one of the tricks he pulled, uh, both in Michigan and in Indiana, was switching the parental forms from opt-in to opt-out. So the default was, you're going to get it. Crafty. Now that yeah, I'm thinking yeah, about he's it. amazing. He's a genius. It was, it was both, if that makes sense. I, had, I could either choose yes or no and then sign that I had seen the form. Which is weird. Yeah, opt-out forms are where, like, the default is, you get this, and only if we receive this back from you, is there, are you, does the that kid is, get something else? That's yeah. crazy. Yeah, it's the same. I mean, they do the same sort of forms like in Australia when you um, get a driver's license. The default is, yes, you are an organ donor and you have to actively check this box if you don't want to be an organ donor, which is the opposite of the way we do it. And they have vastly more organ donors than we do. Of course, because the default just means people get out of the DMV faster. Right. You like, fine. It's another decision I don't have to make. That's fine. Yeah. All right. So, Amanda, I know you have questions. Yeah, I, yes, I have lots of questions. Bring it okay. on. <laughs> um, so this is one of my favorite books that I read last Yay! year. Um, and I have the copy next to me, and it's dog-eared and written in. And <laughs> it's, my my roommate is now reading it. I've passed it Yay! to her, and she loves it. And I will tell you the one story that I brought up the chapter on the hymen on a first Tinder date with a guy, <laughs> and we never went out again, so. <laughs> oh, that's sad. Uh, his well, loss. Or maybe it's a good problem. screening. Yeah, it is a good screening, and I feel like this book has definitely made me more comfortable about my own sexual needs and talking about sex in general, so yeah. a big thank you. I loved it. It was great. I think it should be required reading everywhere. <laughs> if you haven't read it, you need to read it. Um. So I have questions just about the book. And then I also know that you are writing romance. And I think you have a book coming out in the summer. Yeah, too. Because so it's a, it's a it's a um, duology. Oh, so the first one comes sexy. out in, in June and the second one comes out in February. Um, yeah. So then I also have questions about kind of writing romance, but also sure. having this science background. Totes. Um so for those who don't read the book or haven't read the book mm -hmm. or want Which is actually most people on earth. Yeah, well, it's their fault, so. <laughs> <laughs> and want, like, the crib notes. What is essentially, like, the one sort of takeaway, the too-long-didn't-read message right. that you want from this book? Yeah, so I would say that the title is the takeaway, Come As You Are, that you are already 
normal and healthy and have everything you need to have a sexually satisfying life. Unfortunately, you live in a culture that has lied to you about pretty much everything. And sometimes those lies have been really deliberately manipulative, um, like patriarchy trying to control your body. And part of it is just that the science was wrong for a long time. And it's only in the last 20 or 30 years that we've really understood the ways that we have misunderstood, in particular, the way cisgender women's bodies cope with the sexual world. Um, and so I'm trying to, with this book, catch people up on what the science is. So if I were going to have just one thing, especially in the context of romance novels, if there were just one thing I wanted people to remember, it would be the stuff in chapter six about arousal non-concordance. Um, so arousal non-concordance, you may have seen stories in the news about how all women are bisexual, that kind of thing. Um, because when, uh, okay, so let's be scientists. Let's uh, bring in a cisgender. Okay, so almost all the research is done exclusively on cisgender people, people yep. whose assigned gender matches what they their identity grows up into be. So I'm just going to use these technical terms of men and women. And we know for sure that there are people who don't fall under those categories, who are not cisgender and uh, identify in those categories. I apologize. The relationship between sex science and the trans community is very complicated and broken. And we're just going to set that aside temporarily get <laughs> started okay anyway so cisgender dude we bring him into the laboratory we give him a, a rigid scan which does what it sounds like it measures the amount of blood pressure <laughs> we leave him alone in this sort of dimly lit room with a really comfortable lazy boy chair he puts the rigid scan on his penis he pulls a tray over his lap and the lap the tray has two things there's a remote control and there's a little dial and with a remote control he turns on all the porn, every kind of porn you can imagine. Uh, and uh, with the dial, he rates how aroused he feels. And so we leave him alone with the porn and we let him watch all the porn. And later on, we get the data and we look at how much blood was flowing to his penis. And we compare that to how turned on he feels on the little dial, right? And it turns out there's a 50%, percent overlap between how much blood was flowing to his genitals and how turned on he feels. Okay, um, that's not 100%, but in social science, it's super exciting to get a relationship that strong. Like, that relationship is so strong that the researchers who do the research are like, ah, I'm just not sure that can be right. That's just too much of a correlation. <laughs> Everybody else is like, well, yeah, duh. So we do the exact same thing. We clean off the lazy boy chair and we bring in a cisgender woman and we give her a vaginal photoplethysmograph, which is sort of like a little baby flashlight about the size of a tampon. She puts it in her vagina, same tray, same room control, same dial, same all the porn. And we look at the relationship between the amount of blood flowing to her genitals and how turned on she feels. And it turns out there is a 10 one zero percent overlap between how turned on she feels and how much blood is flowing to her genitals. And this is usually because blood flows to a woman's genitals under almost any circumstances, including, and this is the part where we get to, so, okay, women's blood flows to their genitals in response to sort of anything. So if you identify as heterosexual, you'll experience blood flow to your genitals to straight porn and to lesbian porn and probably to gay porn and indeed to violent porn and to feminist porn and to all kinds of everything, including, including videos of bonobo chimpanzees copulating. <laughs> 
So the conclusion that terrible journalists, no, not terrible journalists, just people who aren't quite thinking straight, come to is that women are all potentially these sort of like sexually omnivorous people. If only they hadn't been culturally oppressed out of connection with what's really happening with their bodies. But if that were true, then what that would mean is that women secretly, deep down, have been oppressed out of their actual real desire to have sex with those children chimpanzees no 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 but so then what's going on what's going on is that women's genitals respond to pretty much any sexually relevant stimulus and there is only a partial overlap between what's sexually relevant and what's wanted and liked it turns out we don't know exactly why but for some reason men's genitals um have more of an overlap between what counts as sexually relevant and what is sexually wanted and liked. We don't know why there's a difference, but it turns out that arousal non-concordance happens for dudes too. So this is not a gender-specific phenomenon, it's just more common in women than it is in men. And of course, this is entirely like a patriarchy issue, because if it weren't a patriarchy issue, we'd all be sitting here going, so how come men have so much of a concordance between their blood flow and their sexual arousal? Isn't that sort of like, why? Isn't that sort of weird that men are like so concordant? But no, no, it's only the women. We're like, oh, we're weird. How, can, how, weird, how weird it is. <laughs> as though women, as though men are the default and women are supposed to be like that. And the extent to which women fail to be like men is the extent to which they are broken and crazy and lying. Tell me so, how you really feel about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I have that frustration myself. So just so I make sure I understand, arousal non-concordance is when you are, if you are a cis female or cis woman, mm -hmm. and you're checking out things that emotionally and mentally are like, oh, this is totally a turn on, your body may not reflect your otherwise state of arousal. Yeah. So there so, may, uh, no be, may not be any flash flood in the valley of eternal love. Mm -hmm. But you are ready to ride the rapids. Exactly. Okay, just checking. I'm really proud of that analogy, by the way. <laughs> That's a good one. I'm I really like super this proud really of that. Good. Okay, enough about me. Back to you. <laughs> I like. I got that phone call. A friend called me and asked. So I like. I was so into it. I was so ready to go. My partner was like, "No, you're dry. You're just being nice to me." And she was like. No, I'm I'm ready. Turn it. So she called me. She's like, "What is it? Hormonal? Is there something wrong?" I was like, "Nope, it's arousal on concordance. You're fine. Use some lube." And I, she, she literally had to hand the phone to her partner and say, "You need to tell him that." Oh, so no. I was like, "Yeah." I mean, it's like you tell your toddler, "Listen to her words." You need to believe the person, right? We had a general problem with listening listening to women's words in general about everything. Yeah. yeah. And it's not that women haven't been oppressed out of connection with their own sexuality, but we need to understand what our bodies are saying. And when our genitals respond, what our bodies are saying is there's something sexually relevant happening. And when they don't respond, it just means not sexually relevant, certainly not enough to overcome all the stress, exhaustion, kids, relationship, whatever stuff that's happening to counterbalance the sex. I remember like... I would be in this weird, like, arousal loop, I guess is what I would call. And you you feel ready, but then, like, nothing was happening down there. So then that would stress you out or make you feel awful. And so that just increases the stress, and then yep. that ruins the arousal. And it just 
a big old clusterfuck. And we're like, well, this was short-lived. Maybe next time everything will agree with one another. Yeah, so that's the thing is, so the mechanism in your brain, this is chapter two, sorry. The the mechanism in your brain that controls sexual response is called the dual control mechanism, which means there's two mechanisms functioning simultaneously. Is that the, the chapter with the little test? I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one with the little test where, like, you figure out what your, your accelerator <laughs> and your brakes yes. are. So the accelerator responds to the sexually relevant stimulus, right? And it sends the turn-on signal. But at the same time that that's happening, noticing all the sexy things that you see here smell touch taste or imagine sends a turn on signal at the same time there's your sexual break which is noticing all the reasons not to be turned on right now all the potential threats mostly this is going to be stress and exhaustion and relationship stuff and trust and fear of unwanted consequences like stis or unwanted pregnancy um it's also big cultural stuff like body image is a giant issue sexual shame is a giant issue if you've got a trauma history that's probably in there somewhere so your level of arousal at any given moment is a balance of turning on the ons and turning off the offs and usually when people struggle it's because there's not it's not because there's not enough stimulation happening to the gas pedal it's because there's too much stimulation to the brake so it's really common for people to experience that kind of ambivalence where it's both yes and no at the same time like some things are working here some other things aren't and when you get that sort of like oh no something's not working a very common thing that happens and of course the worst thing you can possibly do is you freak out about it and does that freaking out about the thing not happening the way you expected it, does that does that hit the accelerator? No, it hits the brake. <laughs> yeah, so the more you worry about the sex you're having while you're having it, the more you hit the brakes. I think in the, in the British version of coupling, they call that the melty man. The minute you think <laughs> yeah. about the melty man, well, he's there. And he once he's there, he doesn't leave your head. And then all things deflate. Right. Yes. The one way to guarantee that a, a person cannot get an erection is to like shine a spotlight on a penis and say, get an erection, go, go, erection, go. What's the matter with you? Where's your erection? Get an erection, go. Doesn't work. Now, <laughs> Sorry. No, it's okay. Please bring all of this. <laughs> um, when it comes to sex in romance novels, I was also wondering, because um, we're all romance readers here, how do you feel that they kind of help and hinder the like autonomy and female sexuality like having your own sexual agency because sometimes you know romance novels can do great things for women finding their voice um in the mm -hmm. bedroom but Absolutely. sometimes they're still a little stuck and can kind of hinder that aspect as well like the obsession with virginity and virgins in romance novels is something yeah. that i am not for um and pseudo virginity but, Yes. If it's not the actual uh, virginity, it's whether or not she's a werewolf or whether or not she's had <laughs> anal or, you know, whether or not they've done it in a hotel bathroom. There's always some. In what way, wait, wait, wait. In what ways being a werewolf like being a virgin? <laughs> no, not being a werewolf is like, oh. is like being a virgin. Oh. If she's not a werewolf, then he's going to bite her and she's going to turn into one. Oh, also, see, see. yes, because it's all about some kind of penetration to turn her into a freak in the bedroom or elsewhere. Right. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I don't read a lot of paranormal. Paranormal, not so much for me. It's just not my thing. Um, yeah, I so question, I think... By the way, I love it so much. Narratives, I feel like, have gotten better over the last 20 years in particular. Um, they haven't gotten great 
all the time and there's a whole lot of variability. This is the thing I calculated once. A romance novel with an ISBN number is published every hour in the United States, right? When there are that many stories being published, some of them are going to be amazing and some of them are going to be appalling and some of them are just going to be like not for me. Um, so I think the structure of the stories has gotten more positive, has certainly gotten much more pleasure centered, like about the autonomy and the pleasure of the heroines, I think. And, and at the same time that that's happening, um, just because romance authors don't know the stuff about like arousal not concordance or about the dual control model or this other thing responsive desire that i talk about in the book um they just end up reinforcing the same patriarchal myths assuming that women work the way men do and they just don't um so even though they're getting better they are still not because i i learned I learned about sex from romance novels, and I thought the hymen was about halfway up the vagina when I was 12. You mean it's not? Yeah, I no, right, yeah. it's like, not nine miles like, off yeah. the canal. I don't know. It's right at the mouth of the vagina. It's. I know that, it, like, in terms of the story, it makes a really good story to be able to go a little bit in and, like, get really <laughs> close. And, like, you haven't broken the hymen, and therefore she hasn't lost her virginity until you, like, bust through halfway. Like, that's not how it works. The hymen doesn't break with penetration. There's no relationship between whether or not a vagina has been penetrated by anything and the size of the hymen. There is no relationship. Um, some people are born without hymens. Some people have septate hymens or microperforate hymens or imperforate hymens. Hymens just vary, and they don't vary depending on whether or not a person has had their vagina penetrated. A vagina um, is not likely to bleed from having the hymen broken. The hymen very rarely breaks, and if it does, it heals. It may bruise, or it heals. The most common cause of bleeding with penetration is lack of lubrication. What? <laughs> which yes so i have some feelings about that i think that the thing about virginity is not actually i think it had more to do with story structure like the stakes are higher when it is a first time um and there is a difference in the experience of a sensation that is novel compared to the experience of a sensation that is familiar um how, how nerdy should i be Super nerdy. Oh, um, we need extreme. <laughs> we need like extreme nerd. Extreme levels. nerdy. Bring okay. It. So I'm going to talk about the rat nucleus accumbens, which <laughs> okay. is like one of I my just favorite. had an orgasm. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> See, that counts as sexually relevant stimulation for you, and frankly, for me. Um, See, I already <laughs> knew this about myself. The minute I start learning something, it's like from head to toe, my entire body is like, oh my God, this learning thing is so cool. Yeah. I can't believe we do this every day. So yeah, <laughs> you and me. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So um, so here's the deal with the rat nucleus accumbens. When you zap the front, so the nucleus accumbens is this little tiny organ in the middle of the emotional brain. And when you zap the front of it, the rat engages in approach behaviors, which is like sniffing and moving forward. Ooh, ooh, what's that? It goes, goes the rat. Um, so these are approach moving toward curious behaviors. And when you zap the back of the nucleus accumbens, the rat goes, what the hell is that? It kicks up dust in the face of the predator. It's trying to avoid things, right? So hit the front, it's moved toward. Hit the back, it's moved away. 
away. But when you move the rat into what I call the rat spa, where it's silent and dark and it smells like the rat's mother, like, you know, that spa feeling of like you're just as relaxed and safe and peaceful as you can imagine feeling. <laughs> when you zap the front of the nucleus accumbens, the rat does that approach. Ooh, what's that? Curious behavior. And when you zap the back of the nucleus accumbens, approach curious oh what's that when you are in that calm peaceful state of mind your brain interprets almost any sensation as something that can be approached with curiosity and pleasure but wait there's more because if we move that same rat okay so this is the part where this research paper made me laugh out loud um they move the rat into the third box which um uh the lights are on really bright which rats really hate and the, uh, there's a lot of noise and it's differing volumes they're playing music they specify in the paper that they are playing iggy pop <laughs> i don't know how they decided iggy pop was like the most stressful music they could play for the rats but that's the music they're playing for the rats it's different volumes um so the rat is totally freaking out and unhappy and when they zap the front of the nucleus accumbens the rat engages in avoidance what the hell is that clam moving away behaviors when you are in a stressed unsafe state of mind your brain will interpret almost any stimulation as something to be avoided as a potential threat, even stimulation that in a different context it might have moved toward, which of course is the thing that all of us ex have experienced with tickling. Yeah. When you're in like a groovy, fun, positive state of mind and you're certain special someone tickles you, that can feel playful. I know tickling people, not everybody loves to be tickled, but it can feel playful and good. Whereas if you're pissed off with your partner and you they tickle <laughs> you, you want to punch them in the face. <laughs> and the opposite is also true. If you're pissed off at your partner and they playfully try to spank you on the ass, like Make stabbing will happen. <laughs> yes. Whereas if you're like already turned on and you've got this like moment of like really big, deep trust and arousal and they slap your ass, that's not going to hurt. That's going to feel pleasurable. Your brain will interpret it as erotic because the context in which your brain is interpreting that sensation is ready to experience the world as an erotic place. Does that make sense? Totally. Yes. So when we have a virgin, what we have is a person who is experiencing these sensations for the very first time. And we know that novelty actually increases the quantity of brain chemicals released in response to any sensation. So it genuinely is like a larger scale experience. And their brain is trying to figure out, do I like this? Is this good? Is this pleasurable? And the better their partner is at creating a context that is intensely erotic and trusting and especially affectionate, and low stress, the more likely their brain is to be like, anything you want to do, I am ready to interpret as being a hot as hell. Huh. So I think there's, there's more, the virginity thing is not just patriarchy, though I think a big part of it is patriarchy. Um, there's also uh, like an intensity of stimulation that comes with novelty. Wow. Was that nerdy enough for you? No, that was, Super I need a cigarette and I don't smoke. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is really cool. Are Man, there, go ahead, Amanda. What? No, I was going to ask if, she's, if there are any romances she would recommend um, because I'm always looking for books where people get the science of sex right. Like, that would be nice. Um, but I don't know if you've read any recently that you would recommend to yeah. readers. It's hard because. Mostly they get it the most right when they go into the least detail. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, fair. 
Then the book, so my two favorite authors sort of by a wide margin are Laura Kinsale and uh, Judy Cuevas, um, um, Judith Ivory. And it's not that they both have gotten all the sciencey stuff wrong. In fact, uh, one of my very, very favorite books, oh crap, I'm going to forget the title. Uh, that's, my, um, that's my brain too. Not the proposition. It's the one in Yorkshire with the sheep. Somebody out there is like, I know exactly what you mean. And he's a Viscount. <laughs> Crap. Anyway, the first scene, the consent is borderline. And uh, Judith Ivory relies a lot on the physiological arousal of the heroine to explain to us that actually she really totally is into it. Mm. And that doesn't cut it for me. Seeing about physiological arousal is not enough. I need words of pleasure. I need to know that it's not just that her genitals are arousing, aroused, it's that she likes what's happening. Um, so it, it, so even though that's one of my favorite books, I cannot believe I can't remember the title. Holy crap, it's going to make me crazy. It's going to like pop into your brain towards the end of the podcast. like random. Yeah, What I'm going to do is actually... Or at three in the morning. <laughs> Untie my heart. There it is. Untie my heart. Thank you, Google Autocomplete. Um, <laughs> even though it's one of my very, very, very favorite romance novels that piece of it makes me a little bit nutty. Um, so it's like spectacular and I love it. And it makes me nutty. Um, I have a hard time reading Shadowheart, Laura Kinzel, um, because it starts with the hero raping the heroine. Uh, and I like, I just like, that's not why I read romance novels. I read romance novels for the opposite of that. But it does a really awesome job of representing uh, the process of rage and allowing the hero, he's a submissive pain slut. That's amazing. <laughs> How many submissive pain slut heroes are there in romance? Very few. <laughs> Not that many. So she does a really good job of representing what the sexuality of a um, submissive pain slut is like and what a person goes through in terms of being able to express their rage and punish essentially their rapist in this like amazingly erotic way. It's a very complicated book. I have complicated feelings about it, but I think it's really interesting, that book. Um, and for people who are in a place where they can read that kind of story, totally recommend it. Yeah. <laughs> and then again, like yesterday, I just reread uh, Venus in Furs, which is uh, Sasha Masak's. It's sort of like the text that people turn to as the beginning. Like masochism is named after Sasha Masak. His primary fantasy was to be humiliated and whipped by um, a beautiful woman wearing fur coat. So that's what the Venus in Furs is. Um, and the it was astonishing for me. I reread it for the first time in 15 years. And discovered that it comes to the same conclusion as Andrea Dworkin did in the 1980s, fully 100 years after Venus and Furs was written, which is that uh, a woman can only be a companion to a man when she is equal in her rights, education, and work opportunities. And without that, she can only ever be uh, either a slave or a dominant which was which was a, a wacky thing to realize that Sasha Masak and Andrea Dworkin, of all people, agree. Whoa. <laughs> I also think this might be the first time we've had the phrase submissive pain slut on the podcast. Oh, no question. <laughs> yeah, we don't, we don't do that. <laughs> it's If anybody wants to, like, look up the titans, algalagnia is the technical term. Um, so you obviously did a lot of research for Come As You Are. 
how do you plan to use this research in your romance novels, which are yeah. obviously fiction, but I'm sure we'll have, like, one of the, both of the characters are scientists, if I remember correctly. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> which I am definitely into. Um, so how, how do those kind of overlap? Yeah. Um, so the, oh, all right. I'm just going to be completely honest with you guys, if that's okay. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, I had to read Fifty Shades of Grey as research for Come As You Are. I couldn't not read it. And it um, made me so angry, I threw it against the wall several times and wrote five angry blog posts about it. It's not just that the sex wasn't very good. It's that, so I work with college women, right? And Anastasia is a college student at the start of the story. And if she came to my office as one of my students and told me about her relationship, there's a federal mandate that says I have to report her relationship as a student experiencing violence, not because of the sex. Oh no, the sex is generally mostly consensual, but low quality, but the relationship, he's her stalker. Like yes. I'd be federally mandated to require to like report her. Like that's yes. appalling to me. As a sexual health educator on a college campus, I was so mad that that was being sold as a romance. Um, and because I was writing Come As You Are, I had to learn about story structure in order to write a good compelling book that kept people reading. Um, and so I saw story structure at work in the book. I saw what worked about it for people. And I was so mad. And I was like, there's got to be a feminist, sex positive, medically accurate way to tell a story about a college senior who experiences her sexual awakening at the hands of a more experienced man. And people were like, money where your mouth is, Emily. So I fucking wrote it. <laughs> in three months and nice I said job. It to my editor kind of as a joke like do you remember how mad I was about Fifty Shades of Grey I wrote a romance novel and she was like I can sell this fabulous and she did in a two book deal which is good because like Fifty Shades it has a, a, a cliffhanger ending let's be totally honest and fair it has a cliffhanger ending and when you get to the end of it if I've done my job right you'll be like what happens next <laughs> um, so just not a happy ending on the first on the first book, but there is ultimately a happy ending at the end of the second book, of course. Um, so I made it. I improved the consent conversation. So they talk about their sexual histories in a very explicit way. They uh, he will not. Okay, so one of the things that pissed me off about Fifty Shades was when Anastasia tells Christian that uh, she's a virgin. What does he say? I don't Let's remember. take care of that. Let's get oh that out God. of the way. Yeah. I was just going to so, say, doesn't he say something like, well, I can deal with that quickly? Yeah. yeah let's, like, let's just eliminate that problem, that little barrier. Um, uh, whereas my says, you honor me. And then he's like, I don't do romance. So, like, don't expect it to be nice or whatever. Yeah, I, I don't, I, 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 or, I don't yeah. make love. Oh, you fucking yeah, tool. So, so, I mean, some people really love Fifty Shades of Grey, and that's fine. It's just not for me. And I wanted to, so... I wrote it so that my heroine is pre-med, undergrad. Um, she's just been accepted into the MIT, Harvard, uh, MD-PhD program. So it's like the most elite medical education she could possibly be receiving. And she has had a crush on uh, the her supervisor in the lab where she does psychophysiology, psychophysiology research for the last two years. And she's like, I can't leave without at least trying to hook up with him. Um, so she, that's, uh, yeah, he is 
The hero is, of course, because it's a romance novel, I used every trope I could. He's British <laughs> and a psychiatrist. Good and on can you. I do, does the spoilers matter? No, I think it's okay. Yeah, I mean, it's months and months before it comes out. So he's, he's British, he's a psychiatrist, he's a rock climber, and he's the son of a Viscount. Well, of course he is. Of course he is, because he's a romance hero. Yeah. Um, and uh, he's also, I made him uh, a service top, which is a complicated thing. And he doesn't identify that way. He's not part of a BDSM community. But what a service top is, is a person who uh, experiences power through giving pleasure. So his ultimate fantasy is to make a woman come so many times that she's basically exhausted and can't move and then fuck her then. So where can I find one of these individuals <laughs> for myself? <laughs> where where can a girl get one of these? At a store? Like, <laughs> I mean, like, it's actually very complicated from a physiological point of view because even though um, male-bodied people who ejaculate... Um, experience uh they have a point of no return a point of ejaculatory inevitability and then a refractory period where like that brake gets pulled on and the seat back goes back and they're down for the count um <laughs> female bodied people who don't ejaculate do not experience that so in principle a female body can continue having orgasms long past the point of pleasure where it's just this sort of like reflexive accumulation of sexual tension and it's spontaneous and voluntary release over and over and over again um, until you're literally just too physically exhausted to be able to engage the physical tension necessary to get you there. So it's, it's quite a complex uh, phenomenon to experience. And so I wrote like the turning point scene is this very long, she has lots of orgasms and there's this big emotional stuff that happens when you go through it. Um, and yeah, she eventually, and there is always an element of choice where you're like, I, I mean, you could keep stimulating me and I'm just, I'm just not going to, I got nothing else for you. Um, <laughs> and that's the point at which he's like, I did it. Hooray. Yay. And he feels successful. And he has permission then to experience his own pleasure when he has uh, gotten her to the point where she's literally like too exhausted to move, which is that that's a complicated sort of power dynamic, right? I would say so. Requires a lot um, of stamina. Yeah, <laughs> really, genuinely. I mean, it takes hours. Um, he also, when he ties her down, he makes her name all the kinds of sensation interpreted by the mechanoreceptors of the peripheral nervous system. There's another scene where he pins her to the bed by her hair and won't touch her clit unless she lists all the cranial nerves in order. Well, that's just, I mean... that's just the worst kind of pop quiz ever. <laughs> <laughs> But I know uh, several readers who would eat this up with a spoon. No, when I talked about this, I mentioned it really, I just gave a talk at MIT and I mentioned really briefly this stuff. And as soon as I talked about the cranial nerves, six hands went in the air like, when can I buy that story? <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, they're both big giant nerds and they talk in a big giant nerd way. Um, but they're both also really connected with their bodies and have this intense sexual connection. Um, and her, she, um, because it's her first sexual experience, she just sort of hands herself over to this guy she trusts a whole lot and does anything he wants. And it's like perfect for him because what he wants is to give her every orgasm she is physically capable of having. It seems like a pretty sweet deal to me. Yeah. Um, and, then, <laughs> and, and then she leaves. That's the cliffhanger, I'm assuming. She yeah, leaves that's the for her program. Yeah. I mean, of course, because they, like, she 
totally falls in love with him 100%. How could you not? Um, and he, of course, has a like dysfunctional family of origin and an avoidant attachment mechanism. So one of the things I talk about in Chapter 4 of Come As You Are is attachment and the way that influences how our sex and relationships interact with each other. And he's got an avoidant attachment mechanism. I have him talk explicitly. I have him explain his attachment mechanism in terms of the original science on attachment by Harry Harlow in 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Um, like his email to her where he apologizes is the DOI number of the research paper that he feels like best explains <laughs> his experience. So how did, I, how did the science inform the story? I made, I made my characters scientists who communicate with each other through the science. I mean, it seems like it's their love language anyway, is science. Yeah, absolutely, so. yeah. I think I only have one last question. Um, you talked about some of the research that you did for writing romance, i.e. reading Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, what other research did you do? Did you find romance novel research more fun than researching for nonfiction? This is, I guess, from like a writing yeah. standpoint. Well, the research that I did that allowed me to write romance novels is actually research I did for Come As You Are. So in Come As You Are, you follow the stories of these four women, and those women are composites. So each in each of the nine chapters, there's a story for each of the four women, and each of those individual stories is true, is based on the thing that really has happened to women I know, um, but they're tied together across the book so that you follow an, a narrative. And I had to learn how to construct that sort of narrative arc um, so I learned about the structure of storytelling um, for Come As You Are. I learned about how to make stories compelling for Come As You Are. And I used that in uh, writing the romance novels. The rest of the research, so I just got back from London, um, and the second book has not yet been through its copy edit round. So while I was in London, there are some scenes set there. So I went and visited the places um, that so, for example, the hero's brother has a house in London, and I based it on a place that actually exists. So I went and like looked at the house and its geography and how you would actually approach it. So I mean, it started becoming really practical. Um, and because okay, so one of the things that happened as I was writing fiction is that I realized it wasn't just about me fixing what I thought was wrong with this one particular story. It actually helped me to process emotionally this really intense work I do around responding to sexual violence and preventing sexual violence. I had one day where four students told me uh, that they had been sexually assaulted. I was the first person they had ever told that to. Four students in one day is a lot. Um, oh and my, my usual, yeah, it was, it was this like incredibly intense day. And my usual course of action would be either to go for a run or just to like drink box wine in the tub. <laughs> um, so instead what I did was I sat in front of my computer and I wrote the proposal scene and I felt this thing happening in my body where I was transforming these four women's stories. And I know that they are going to recover. I know that they're going to move through a healing process and come to their own happy ending, but I don't ever get to see that. What I get is the report. Um, so I sat and I wrote the scene where the hero is on his knees, literally um, asking to stand side by side with this amazing woman who I have created, um, giving her the ultimate happy ending and like, building love for real. And I was like, oh shit, I should be doing this forever. I clearly <laughs> need this as a part of my life in order to be able to maintain 
the intense emotional labor of doing sexual violence prevention and response. Um, so I have kept writing. Um, and the new, the, the third book I'm working on now, The Hero, is half Georgian. Georgian is in the nation. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's an actor. So the, the, the sort of like one sentence thing is uh, during his Oscar acceptance speech, this actor blurts out the name of his long lost love. And when the paparazzi find her, he discovers where she went to and how he can get her back. And so I've had to learn a whole bunch of stuff about Georgia and horses and comparative literature because the heroine is of course a professor of comparative literature and profoundly introverted. And I've made, I mean, I torture this heroine. I do terrible things to this heroine. Because the only way you can make it like really satisfying at the end is if you do terrible things to people along oh, yeah. the way so that they can feel really good. So, and I, I love the learning about all these different peripheral things. Um, and I, uh, so I've learned, so yeah. So I get to do all kinds of research and learn lots and lots of different things. And it turns out that it's really good for me to be able to turn the emotional intensity of the work I do into something that's satisfying. And I think will I mean, the reason I read romance is because I do all this really hard work and I require happy endings. I require them in my life. And romance novels are a place where I know for sure that I can get them. So now it's not just that I am consuming happy endings constructed by other people. It's that I am creating them and then they're going to go out in the world and other people get them too. And that feels really rewarding and fabulous. So you're a service top, is what you're saying. <laughs> 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 Literary service top. <laughs> yeah, it gives me pleasure to give other people pleasure, except that I also like to torture people. Actually, I hadn't thought about it that way. Oh, my God. Oh, yes. That I kind of like, I mean, like, that's the thing I love about Laura Kinsale is that, like, she drags you through hell. Oh, it's going to be a wrenching happy ending by the time you get to an end of a Kinsale book. Almost all of my very favorite romance novels are the ones where, like, you just go through the bleakest, darkest, most horrible things. Dream a little dream. Oh, my God. Sorry, go ahead. I said there's that comfort that, you know, like, even though they're going through all this awful stuff. That's right. They're gonna, they're gonna With get a fucking literary you. novel, they just torture people for the hell of torturing people. And then they die. And then it <laughs> ends. Right? And, and you're like, well, ashtray why and the rain, And that's all you get. Right. And, like, and I, that's life. I don't need a book for that. <laughs> I, that's every day. <laughs> well, I, so I started reading romance novels probably in my mid-teens, like 15, 16. And I remember being in my high school, yeah, my high school library. I'm like, oh, I'll just read The Age of Innocence. It's kind of like a, you know, like a historical romance. And uh-huh. it did not have a happy ending. And it ruined my life. And uh, <laughs> it was a good book. But I was very upset. that like, Fuck you, Age of Innocence. <laughs> right? I was very upset with Edith Wharton. Very upset. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I sort of like, I went, I, I have read a lot of literary fiction lots and lots and lots of literary fiction and nowadays I only do it when I'm in already in a great place and I know for sure mostly what I read is romance because happy endings why would I why would I spend my time investing emotionally in characters when I don't know that they're finally going to live happily ever after why would I do that to myself 
we ask ourselves that same question whenever someone asks us, why do you read all that? And we go, well, why, why would we not? Duh. And it's, it's not that there aren't terrible romances. Of course there are. There's terrible everything. There's terrible literary fiction. There's terrible nonfiction. There's terrible sci-fi. And none of those things guarantees you a happy ending. So even, I mean, it's like pizza. Even the worst pizza is still pretty okay. <laughs> Don't people use that analogy for sex? Well, sometimes, it's like, good. two hours later, you're regretting that pizza. Yeah. <laughs> so. That's true. Is there <laughs> such a thing as, like, a hate-eat of pizza? Sometimes. I feel like it, when you're in, like, an emotional state, you're like, I just need pizza in I'm just going to eat this care. pizza. I know yeah. I'm going to have a stomachache. Screw yeah. you. I'm, I know I'm borderline lactose intolerant, but I need the cheesiest pizza you can find me. I need to destroy my body on this pizza. Yeah. <laughs> but I do I do have a sense that as the person who makes the pizza now, um, I know this is not true for everyone who writes romance, but I do feel a responsibility to represent women's sexuality as it actually is. Um, or as it actually can be, because every woman is different from every other woman. And to say something positive and empowering about women's sexuality, and when I write the sex, to have it be the way sex really can work. Not because, like, that's the hottest kind of sex, but because when you say something true about women's sexuality, in any context, if you say it out loud and in public, something true about the way women experience the sexual world, that is an act of radical political action that has the potential to change the world and scare the fuck out of people. And that's really important that we do that. So I, it's, even though I know it's like, for me, it's really about the happy ending. When I write, what I really want to do is give a happy ending in the context of like, this is what it's really happening. This is what's actually going on. Um, and so I feel motivated to go just a little deeper than some stories necessarily go. Does that, not, does that make sense? Totally. Absolutely makes yeah. sense. So what is your book called? Oh, uh, the first novel is called How Not to Fall. Uh-huh. See, he teaches her to rock climb. Aww. Yeah, and uh, and how not to fall is not to mind falling, and the way not to mind falling is to fall a lot. <laughs> it's oh. a metaphor. I was going to say, that's quite a metaphor. Are you writing yeah. these under your own name? No, no, no. So my, my, my romance author name is Emily Foster. All right. I, I, I took a page out of Jennifer Cruzy's book and uh, made my <laughs> author name my father's middle name. Nice. So uh, Emily Foster, the first one's called How Not to Fall, and the second, and it's available for pre-order. Um, and the second, <laughs> the second one is called How Not to Let Go. Those are good titles. It's longer and slightly darker, but has a super happy ending. Yay! Yeah. And that is all for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Emily and Amanda. And I want to thank Emily for taking all the time to talk with us and educate us about seriously cool things. I don't think I could more enthusiastically recommend Come As You Are. If you have an opportunity to buy it or borrow it or get it from the library, it will seriously blow your mind. Her book is truly incredible. And she offered a very cool thing. After we stopped recording, I asked if she would be able to perhaps take questions from podcast listeners and answer them on a future episode. And she said, yeah, sure. So if you've got questions, particularly before or after you read her book, 
Email sbjpodcast at gmail.com and put Emily Nagoski in the subject line, and I will earmark your email for a future episode where I will connect with Emily and will ask all of your questions. I can absolutely protect your anonymity. Just tell me what name or not name you'd like me to use, and feel free to ask anything about sexuality and sex and human relations because she kind of knows everything. This podcast was brought to you by Jessica Corey, author of The Forbidden Wish, published by Penguin Young Readers and available in print and ebook. A lush romantic retelling of Aladdin like you've never imagined, with an all-powerful girl Jenny, a handsome boy from the streets, and one forbidden wish. Perfect for fans of The Wrath and the Dawn and Dorothy Must Die. Available now. And, as I mentioned during the intro, and this part's called the outro, even though my husband doesn't think that's actually a word, it's totally a word, I mentioned that we have some cool things going on on the site this week. First, we have an exclusive excerpt of Renee Adier's new short story, The Moth and the Flame. And The Wrath and the Dawn is on sale for $2.99 this week only. Until tomorrow, March 29th, 2016. So if you're curious, that's a really good price. You can go grab yourself a book that you might really enjoy. I am currently very into fantasy retellings, especially ones that feature heroines with lots of power. I like contemporaries with competent heroines. I like fantasy with competent heroines. I like historical with competent heroines. This is basically my catnip. But yes, The Wrath and the Dawn is $2.99. We have an exclusive short story excerpt on the site. You can find it at bit.ly, bit.ly slash mothandflame or sbtb, sb-tb.com. sbtb.com, by the way, is for sale for something like $19,000. I don't think I can do a Patreon for that one or a Kickstarter. Or, and that's just ridiculous. The music you're listening to is provided by Sassy Outwater. You can find her on Twitter at Sassy Outwater. This is my continued exploration of the band Sketch and their new album, Shed Life. This is called Eichbound, and you can find this and their album and more information about them on Amazon or iTunes or on their website. I will have links to all of those things on the podcast show notes, as well as all of the books that we discussed during the episode and links to Emily's current book, Come As You Are, and her upcoming romance written as Emily Foster, which I'm sure many of you are making grabby hands at the device on which you're listening to podcasts. But in the meantime, on behalf of Emily Nagoski and Amanda and myself and everyone here, we wish you the very best of reading. Have a great weekend. Bye.